are good to sing praises to our God, to have our hearts lifted up with joy and to sing to His praises and to pray to Him. Thank you so much, Nick and the team, for leading us so beautifully. Uh, I was excited to preach this evening. I'm even more excited now, so you guys are in trouble. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Mark chapter 6, verse 45, and we're going to read all the way to chapter 7, verse 37. Uh, this morning I had the joy of being back at uh, an old church that uh, was very meaningful to Barry and myself, and we were at our in-laws having lunch, and lo and behold, knocking on the door were Jehovah's Witnesses. And you better believe I jumped at that opportunity. They weren't ready for it. And I was so encouraged. I got to share the gospel with them meaningfully. I believe I got to challenge them. And I left that just getting so excited for this passage, just to see how God had worked what I have to preach tonight into the conversation for that, and how even it helped me get excited more so for tonight. So I say that again. You guys are in trouble tonight. If you can please read with me uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 45. It's a long section, but a beautiful section, I believe. This is God's word. Let us hear it uh, with joy and thanksgiving. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched, it were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observed, such as washing, the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy, prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. And he said to you, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whosoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered this house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach? And he's expelled. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered the house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and she said to her, let the children be, first, be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyran, went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside, taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged him to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond all measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf and the mute speak. 
And he's so far in the reading of God's word. May he reform our lives to its truth. Uh, will you pray with me? Again, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word, as we come to your living word, we pray that you'd speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us. And dear Lord, that you especially would draw our hearts to you this evening. We confess, dear Lord, that we are a needy people, often a wayward people, a sinful people. Yet we thank you that you have given us your Son as our Savior. And we pray that even this evening he would be magnified, he would be praised. In his name we pray. Amen. Let me start by saying I need help. I, I have this perpetual problem with my car. If I take it for a wash, lo and behold, in a month's time, it is dirty again. Out of nowhere, it gets filled with old coffee cups and till slips, and out of nowhere, I need to wash this thing again. And I have to ask myself again and again, what's wrong with my car? Now, you might say, Shane, you numchuck, it's not the car, it's you. You're the problem. And if you thought that way, you're right. No, I'm not a numchuck, it's me. Now, why bring up this problem that is really only mine, and perhaps some of you, I've seen your cars. <laughs> May I suggest to you, like my car, our lives are often marked by sin because our hearts get tainted by sin. What is true of me and my car is true of our hearts and our lives. Our greater problem isn't the fact that our external life is often marked by the rubbish of sin. No, the greater problem is that internally our hearts are perpetually tainted and corrupted by the sin and this world. This is true if you're an unbeliever, and yes, this is even true of you if you're a believer. Yes, you have a new heart if you're a Christian. God has given you a new heart to believe and follow God, yet even that heart gets tainted by sin. Why do you think David prays in Psalm 51 verse 10, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me? See, the problem is our hearts, often like my car, gets tainted with sin. And whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you this evening know this, what matters at the end of the day is your heart before God. We know Proverbs 4.23, right? Keep your heart Keep your heart with vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. That is to say, as goes your heart, so goes your life. See, the reason our lives, like my car, gets filled with the junk of sin, to make the point again, is because our hearts get filled with junk. We're filled with the desires of the flesh and eyes, filled with the pride of life. That's the the core problem we have. Now, why bring up this matter of the heart this evening? Well, I would argue in our passage, this is the central concern in Mark's section in his gospel. 
Uh, to see something of this, I want us to see how Mark's gospel really fits together here. Between the, the two feedings, the feeding of the, the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8, we see this pattern arise. We see Jesus walking on the water, Mark 6.45 onwards, followed by him being pursued by Jewish crowds. And right at that point, Jesus gives his only teaching in the section on the heart when he confronts the Pharisees. This is followed by more people pursuing Jesus, this time the Gentiles, and particularly a Gentile woman, followed again by a healing of a deaf man, another miracle. And so we need to note, note a few things here. We clearly see that there is this pattern here. There is this feeding of 5,002 miracles, followed by the section of teaching, followed again by two miracles and another feeding. In fact, there are some parallels in, in this pattern. Uh, when Jesus walks on the water and when he heals the deaf man, we see that both of those groups respond with astonishment. Yet, their astonishment, you see that in verse 51 of chapter 6 and 37 of chapter 7, yet despite their astonishment, Mark portrays it in, in less than positive ways. There's another parallel. Uh, on the one hand, we see the Jews pursue Jesus, and on the other hand, Gentiles pursue him. And so we see there is this pattern in the section. And not just that, there's this progression as well. Uh, Mark starts with, with a real Jewish focus. He feeds 5,000 Jews. He saves his Jewish disciples. He, he goes to the Jewish region of Gennesaret, and, and the Jews flock to him. And finally, he, he confronts the, the Jewish leaders. And after that conflict, he, he turns to the Gentiles. And a Gentile woman pursues him, and, and he heals a Gentile, and he feeds ge a Gentile crowd. And, and so we see that, that at the heart of this passage is this conflict, and, and that's really the focus of this text. At the heart of this passage is Jesus' teaching on the heart. It's toward this focus that the Jewish miracles happen, and it's from this focus that Jesus' Gentile miracles happen. And so I would argue that Mark is, is grouping all of this. He is grouping this teaching on Jesus' uh, conflict with the Jews about the heart, and he's grouping that with these miracles so that we would see that what our hearts desperately need is Jesus. And so with that all in mind, I hope that makes sense and I've not lost you yet. Uh, let's look at this passage. I want to work my way from the inside out. Uh, according to the screen, I want to go by point A, then B, then C. But the first thing I want you to see this morning or this evening is the state of the human heart. The state of the human heart, Mark 7, 1 to 23, can be divided neatly into three sections. Firstly, there is the problem of unclean hands. That is to say, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they accuse him and his disciples of being unclean because they fail to wash their hands before they eat. Now, that shouldn't be too harsh. Right? I'm sure our parents taught us to wash our hands before we eat. If there are boys and girls here, you should wash your hands before you eat. Obviously, that's good hygiene. 
but see, the issue here isn't so much the hygiene for the Pharisees. No, for them, these unwashed hands was a sign that these disciples are ceremonially and, and spiritually unclean before God. And, and realize, uh, the, God's law didn't stipulate that. According to Exodus 30, 19, and Exodus 40, 13, and Leviticus 22, 1 to 6, uh, only the priests actually had to wash their hands before they entered the temple. And according to Leviticus uh, 15, 11, you only really and at least had to wash your hands if you touched a dead corpse. And so it's only when you broke these commandments that you were technically considered unclean and defiled by God. Before God. And yet what we see here is that these Pharisees have added their own laws to God's law. They've added their own little ingredients and they've used that to, to exalt themselves and enslave others in their commands. And this leads naturally to the second portion in this passage. Not just the problem of unwashed hands, but the problem of hypocrisy. Jesus beautifully applies Isaiah 29, 13 to these Pharisees, and he argues that even though they claim to honor God with their lips and their commandments, their hearts are in fact far away from God. Uh, that word for hypocrite in verse 6 is, is often used in the context of theater. It refers to someone who's an actor. He, he's, a, he's one who plays a role. He puts up a mask. He, he puts up a facade. He, he's someone who's practiced in the art of illusion. And, and so it carries this idea of, of duplicity, of, of insincerity. And so Jesus is telling these Pharisees, this is who you are, insincere duplicitous actors, hypocrites who play act to be servants of God, but in reality, in reality, you're just serving yourself. Now this comes out clearly in verse 8, 9, and 30. Look at what he says. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Thus, verse 13, making void the word of God by your tradition. Three times Jesus makes this point that they've exalted their tradition over God. They've elevated their will over God, over His will. Uh, Jesus even lists the example of Corbin, which was a pharisaical tradition that was served to, used to serve their own selfish ends over the Word of God. Carl uh, and myself are teaching Kingsway at the moment, and what we're doing is working through the Ten Commandments, and this week I had to speak on the Third Commandment and, and realize the, the commandment against taking the Lord's name in vain is more than just what you speak. It's, it's how you live. You break that commandment when you live in hypocrisy, when you claim the name of God, yet you fail to walk in His ways. And that's what these Pharisees are guilty of. They've claimed the name of God. They've claimed to be servants of God, but they live falsely. They're hypocrites. And so realize these Pharisees have broken God's law, even in exalting their own. And so they are just as guilty as anyone else. And so that leads us, again, naturally to, to the real problem, the next section 
in this uh, passage, and that is the, the problem of unclean hearts. See, it's not what our hands put in that defile us, Jesus says. No, it's what comes out of the heart that defiles us. More problematic than just having unclean hands is having an unclean heart. I look again to what he says in verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, from out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. See, Jesus lists various vices, various sins, sins of attitude, sins of action, and all of them, whether internal or external, all of them flow from our hearts. Realize that Jesus here is putting his finger on the real problem. The real problem with you and me. The real problem of humanity, which is the state of our hearts. Ecclesiastes verse, chapter 9 verse 3 says this, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Full of evil. Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, dear friends, our problem is our sinful hearts. That's why we see wickedness all around us. That's why this world is in the state it is. That's why we see sin cropping up again and again in our lives. Our hearts are sinful by nature, prone to sin. And therefore, how foolish is it then to think that what matters most is having clean hands? What matters most is, is, is cleaning your hands or trying to live a good moral life. That's foolishness. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses this morning couldn't get. Uh, dear friends, they even argued that God will forgive us if we're sincere. Dear friends, know this. Even if you're sincere, you are sincerely steeped in your sin. Your heart is impure. It's sinful. It's prone. And nothing we can do no effort in our own strength can cleanse our hearts. Proverbs 20 verse 9, who can say, I've made my heart pure. I'm clean from sin. And the answer is obvious, no one. No one, not even these Pharisees with their 600 plus rules, they cannot cleanse their heart. And this reality forces this question on you. What will you do with your heart? Where will you go? Where will you take your heart this evening to have it cleansed and made whole? That's the question we need to ask ourselves continually when we see the junk of sin piling up again and again and our lives flowing again with that rubbish. Where will you go? What will you do? I know the answer is obvious. It's Jesus, right? That's where I'm going. 
But the rest of our section, the rest of Mark's passage around Mark 7 helps explain why Jesus is the solution to our heart problem. And so with that in mind, uh, look secondly, the second thing I want you to see is the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. In Mark 6, 53 to 56, with the healing of the sick in Gennesaret, uh, we see Mark doesn't highlight just one miracle, rather he highlights many And as Mark summarizes Jesus' ministry, he wants us to see that the crowds are flocking to Jesus. Now, what's Mark's point in that? Well, as one commentator notes, Mark wants us to see that Jesus is for the people. Where you find needy people, where you find those who are broken, where you find those who are suffering, that's where you'll find Jesus. Unlike the Pharisees who remove themselves, Jesus identifies. He, he seeks out the needy. He goes to the suffering. He, he goes to those who are defiled. And Mark's main point is this. The picture we have is this. Jesus is the man for the many. It's seen in the fact that he, he not only draws near to them, allowing them to, to touch him, but he draws near to, to heal them and restore them and ultimately save them. And, and, and that really brings us to the purpose of these miracles. Realize the miracles that Jesus performs isn't uh, so that he would just be known as this great miracle worker. No, these miracles work a greater purpose, which is to lead many to faith. Faith in him, not just as this great miracle worker, but faith in him as the Savior. In, in fact, the, the Greek word for healed, they can also be translated as saved. See, those works of healing are meant to be a picture that points to his greater work of salvation. Listen to uh, the commentator James Edwards. He says this, the physical blessings of Jesus are not an end in themselves, but a fork in the road. One branch of which leads to Jesus' final saving power the other to a false understanding of Jesus as simply a wonder worker. Realize when we understand the purpose behind these miracles, that, that's the question that comes to us. Is Jesus just this mighty worker who does great things? Or is he the savior of your soul, a whole savior, not just a savior for your physical needs? That, that's the question to these Jews. Will you have faith in Jesus? Not just as this wonder worker, but the promised Messiah, the Savior, the one your heart needs. Uh, this leads to the story, uh, I think, of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7, 24 to 30. We might ask the question, if, if Jesus is the man for the many, then is he the man for even the Gentiles? And, and Mark's answer is yes. He's the man for the many, which includes both Jew and Gentile. Now again, in this section, Mark's focus isn't so much Jesus' miracle, but the fact that Gentiles also flock to him. In particular, a Gentile woman, a Gentile from Syrophoenicia. That woman from that place goes to Jesus, and she, unlike many of the Jews, displays remarkable faith, a, a persistent, dogged faith, if that makes sense. 
Now, now you might ask the question, if, if Jesus is the man for the many, how do we explain Jesus being quite harsh with this lady? I mean, just look at verse 27. Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, now many commentators offer arguments to try and get around how harsh that sounds. I, I personally don't think that's easy to get around. It's meant to be harsh, I think. Why? To test this woman's resolve, to test her faith. See, Jesus isn't calling this woman a defiled dog because he doesn't care for her or because she's undeserving of his time. No, no, that's how the Pharisees cheated the Gentiles. But that's not Jesus. See, even in him using the strong language, even he is giving them a place. Notice what he says. He says, the children must eat first, implying at least that the dogs will have their turn. In fact, the Greek word there for dog is in the diminutive. It's referring to a small dog, a little puppy, a little house pet. Implying again that even this little dog is part of the household. It's a member of the household. See, what Jesus is essentially saying in a strong yet offensive way is that salvation is of the Jews. That's what he says in John 4, 22. Salvation is of the Jews. It's not just for the Jews. It's for the whole world. But it comes through the Jews. It comes through the Messiah. And so the question is, will this woman, who no doubt has been offended, will she accept Jesus' terms? Will she accept that she in and of herself is undeserving as a Gentile? Will she accept that salvation is through the Messiah. And Mark says, amazingly, she does. She accepts Jesus' terms. She even calls herself a dog. Even if she is an undeserving dog, like a dog with a bone, she will not let go of Jesus. She will persist. And in that persistence, she, she evidences her faith in the sufficiency of Jesus as her Savior. Uh, Jesus' response to this woman in, in Matthew's version is, is quite beautiful. Matthew 15, 28. A woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Uh, Dear friends, know this. It is faith, that kind of faith, empty-handed faith in Jesus that makes an unacceptable, undeserving woman like that acceptable to Jesus. And it's that same kind of faith that makes unacceptable, undeserving sinners like you and me acceptable before God. See, it is by faith that defiled, undeserving dogs get to be members in households and be members in God's household. It is by faith. And Mark's point is this, Jesus is the man for the many. He is the one who draws Jew and Gentile to himself. He is the savior of the whole world. And therefore draw near to him. And Jesus himself says of himself in John 12, 32, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, that is, after I've given my life as a sacrifice for sinners, after I give my blood to purchase you, after I'm resurrected for your justification, when I'm ascended, I'll draw all people 
to myself. May I suggest to you, that is a tremendous encouragement if you understand it. It's a tremendous encouragement. If I think back to the years I walked away from the Lord, the years in my young adult phase where I chased after sin and wickedness and pursued it, I cannot think of a better description of myself back then as a defiled dog chasing its tail. And perhaps like Jesus, we we need to be a little offensive. When our perverse hearts run after the defilement of sin, when we chase after rubbish and pursue it, what better description than a defiled dog? Your dear friends, praise God, he saves dogs like me. I dare to say even like you. He saves sinners. See, our hearts easily run after the evil and wickedness of the soul, but he even saves us. Uh, this morning, eight years ago, let me start that way. Eight years ago at Rosettenville Baptist, we had... Uh, I remember in one uh, one year we had a guy who came to the church. He was a vagrant, a beggar, and he was a shyster. He tried to work the system. He tried to get money out of us any which way he can. And it all came to a head one morning. He lost his school. He, He huffed and he puffed and he left, and I haven't seen him again. I met him this morning. Clothed, off the street, healthy, sitting on a Sunday morning, in church, did your friends behold the grace of God? He saves sinners. That, that's the point Mark is trying to say. Here is the Savior of the world, even when the world runs after its sin, after the perverse desires of its heart. So, so to so the question we need to ask at this point is why Jesus, he saves sinners, but why is he the Savior of the world? Well, one answer to that question is this, that Jesus is the man for the many, but I would also argue that Jesus is the God for the many. The third thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the, the strength of God. He's the strength of God. At both ends of our section, we see two miracles. And when you actually look at these miracles through the lenses of the Old Testament, you see something of the glory of God in Jesus. Let's look first at Jesus' walking on water. You see that in Mark 6, 45 to 52. Now note how Mark describes this miracle when the disciples were struggling to make headway on the sea. We are told that Jesus walked to them on the water and interestingly Mark says that he intended to pass by them. Yet when they got fearful, when they saw him, Jesus says to them to comfort them, take heart, it is I. Ego, I mean the Greek. And then when he gets into the boat, we're told specifically the winds miraculously ceased. Now there's a lot to unpack from that, but three things to note. Firstly, Jesus does what only God can do. Jesus does what only God can do because he walks on water. Throughout the Old Testament, it is God alone who has the authority and the ability to do that which is impossible for us, and that is walk on water. 
Psalm 77 verse 19 says of God, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Now it's referring to Exodus, but the point is that God controls the waters. He is the one who walks over it, controls it. Or consider Job 38.60, when God corrects Job, he says, Have you gone to the springs that fill the sea, or walked about the recesses of the deep? See, the idea here is, is God alone is able to control and walk over the waters. And here we see Jesus do what only God can do. Note secondly, Jesus uses the divine name of God. He tells them, take heart. He says, it is I, ego, I'm in the Greek, which can be translated as I am. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know God identifies himself as I am in Exodus 13, 14. But more than that, in Isaiah, over a dozen times, God refers to himself as I am. Here's one example, Isaiah 52, 6. God speaks and says, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. Now, put yourself in the sandal of these frightful disciples. Here they see Jesus walking on the water. Here they see him declare the name of God. And the implication we're meant to get is this. This is no mere man. This is God in the flesh. But wait, there's more. There's more. Hold, bear with me. Jesus is not just the, the God, the one who does what God alone does. He is not just the one who, who used the divine name of God. Jesus is the revelation of God. When Mark says that Jesus meant to pass by his disciples, we need to realize that that language is quite theologically significant. Tell me, uh, when Moses wanted to see God's glory, what did God do? Uh, Exodus 33 God passed by him. Uh, tell me, when Elijah was discouraged and he wanted to be encouraged by the fact that God is in control, what did God do? 1 Corinthians 19, God passed by Elijah. See, in Scripture, the language of God passing by speaks of his special self-revelation. And Mark seems to be saying that the God who is in control, Yahweh, his glory is seen in Jesus. In fact, perhaps even more important than Moses and Elijah, listen to what God is said of God in Job 9, and look at the parallel with Mark. It says that it is God who alone stretches out the heavens and trampled the waters of the sea, that is, walked over the waters, who made the bear, the Orion, the, the Pleiades, the, and the chambers of the south, who, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Do you see the similarities of Mark 6 and Job 9? It seems that Mark is saying that the mysterious God that Job couldn't see, that God is seen in Jesus. Jesus isn't just a man for the many. Mark would seem to say he is God for the many. This is the God for the many. But wait, 
there's more, I sound like a TV advert guy, there's more, hold with me, bear with me. Look secondly at Jesus' healing of the deaf man in Mark 7, 31 to 37. In this miracle, we see that Jesus is in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, where exactly is that? Well, it's modern-day Lebanon. Put that in the back of your pocket. Then we're told that while he's in this region, an unnamed group of men bring a deaf man and mute man to Jesus, and we're told they beg him to heal this man. Now, here's what's interesting. Mark describes this man in verse 32 as having a speech impediment. Uh, the ESV calls it that. The NIV, the NET, NET calls, says that he had, a, had difficulty talking. Now, whichever way you translate it, that Greek word only appears twice throughout the whole Bible. Uh, once in the New Testament in our passage, and once in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Particularly in Isaiah 35. Now, if you will indulge me, and maybe I'm going on an indulging route, but indulge me for a little, if you would turn there with me, and just look at Isaiah 35, this first six verses. This passage is describing uh, the joy and gladness that God's people will have when He returns to them. Uh, listen to what Isaiah says. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing the glory of where? Lebanon, where is that? Tyre and Sidon. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And therefore it says strengthen, therefore the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap with, like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, same word in Mark, the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Do you again see the connection? Isaiah describes the glorious revelation of God who comes to save his weak people with his strong arm. And Mark is saying, this glorious God has now arrived in Jesus. Jesus is the strength of God for the salvation of weak and broken sinners. Or are you weak and broken? Is your heart like a dry wilderness cracked up because sin has robbed life out of you? The Scriptures would say, rejoice then in Jesus. Sing and be glad because Jesus is the glorious God who with a strong arm has come and He is mighty to save you. He is mighty to make you new and renew you. Notice verse 37 of Mark 7. The crowd responds by saying, He has done all things well. Uh, many 
commentators point out that that's similar to Genesis 131, where God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. It's almost as if we're meant to see that just as the Father has made all things well, so to Jesus, the Son of God has made all things well. It's appropriate in that Paul says that if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. He, he takes that broken, withered heart. He takes that brokenness that sin has caused, and he makes you new. He restores. I, I know I'm belaboring the point, so let me get to the point. All of humanity is broken and defiled by sin because our hearts have been defiled and broken by sin. And Mark is saying, only Jesus is able to heal you. Only he is able to cleanse you. Only he is able to save you. And the question is still yours. Where will you go to with your heart? Who will you give your heart to for it to be cleansed? Dear friends, there is no one who can do that except Jesus. As I told the JWs this morning, you can't stand before Jehovah with your sincere heart. No, you need a heart that's been purged and cleansed. You need a Savior who wrestles that sin out of you and cleanses you. Your friends, where will you go to with your heart? Now, if you don't like that language of giving your heart, Remember, that's Calvin's motto. Calvin's motto in life was, My heart, I offer it to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. See, Calvin wanted to heal all, yield all of his life to God because not only does God deserve it, but God alone can save him. Dear friends, beloved of God, will you not give your heart to Jesus? Will you not yield your life to him? Will you not... Give your heart to him promptly. Uh, don't be like the disciples in Mark 6. Don't be like the men in Mark 7. Both groups of men were astonished. They were amazed at Jesus. Yet here's the problem. The disciples were astonished, yet their hearts were hardened. Although they saw his miracles, they saw the loaves of bread, they couldn't grasp that this is the Messiah. They were hesitant. Don't be like the men in chapter 7 who were astonished. Yet even when Jesus told them, don't tell anyone, they disobeyed. And the more he said, don't do it, the more they disobeyed. Don't be like these men. Don't come to Jesus with hesitancy, with disobedience. Don't come to Jesus holding back. Realize Jesus didn't hold back when he saves us. He when he let the crowds touch him in Mark 6, when he touched this deaf man in Mark 7, we're meant to see his compassion. We're meant to see how close he is, and that's all a picture we see in the cross as he takes our place. He pays for our sin. He, he bears God's wrath for us. He didn't hold back anything to save us. Therefore, don't hold back with him. Give your heart promptly to him and give it sincerely to him. Don't be like these Pharisees. Don't be a Christian play actor who puts up a facade thinking that your religiosity, your facade before others, your self-effort can somehow just get you right by yourself. No, you cannot heal yourself. It is only when you give your heart to Jesus and you continue to give it to Jesus 
that your heart will be made new and he will be Lord and Savior and Redeemer of your life. See, just like my car, our hearts are continually made dirty by sin and wilderness. Therefore, we need to daily go to Jesus. Daily rest at his feet. Daily give ourselves to him, our heart to him in faith and repentance. Why? Because he alone can cleanse you and he alone is worthy of your life. And therefore, dear, dear friend, respond to Jesus this evening with faith. Respond to him like the Syrophoenician woman. Accept his terms. Accept him as Lord and Savior. Accept him as the only hope of your heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, my prayer for this evening is quite simple. I pray that you would make Calvin's motto our motto, that we would promptly and sincerely give our hearts to you, O Lord. Do this through your Spirit, Father, in your Son we pray. Amen.